Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Bandcamp is looking for a user experience designer, and this is a remote position. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. You know, 2021 is just around the corner, and for just $99, your listing can be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll help spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure you head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on the listing that I just mentioned. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to shout out and thank everyone who copped some of our new merch during our limited edition drop that we did earlier this month with Moan Cherry. If you didn't know, we had t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, hats, all for a very affordable price. If you saw the gift guide, you could get 50% off any order of $50 or more. So a lot of people managed to cop some really great stuff. If I get some pictures that come in, I'll make sure to post them up on Instagram. But if by chance you weren't able to cop anything, don't worry. Just make sure that you're following us on Twitter and Instagram and find out when we do the next drop, which will happen, I want to say, probably sometime early next year. But make sure that you're following us on social media so you'll get word about that. All right, now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Donald Burlock, creative technologist lead for the physical experience design team at Capital One. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yes, I am Donald Burlock, and I work as a experience designer and creative technologist right now at Capital One. And I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. So let's talk about your work at Capital One. You're, uh, according to LinkedIn, you're the creative technologist lead on the physical experience design team, which Honestly, when I think of Capital One as a bank, none of that comes to mind. And I've had Capital One people on the show. So so talk about that for me. Like, what is a creative technologist for starters? And how do you work on the physical experience design team for a bank? To really start, I really think that people sometimes will think about banking in the sense of what is happening in the physical space when they go in and they see a teller. And the reality is, you know, banking is something that happens all the time, all around us. And and we're constantly banking because we're constantly spending. We're constantly thinking about our budget. We're constantly thinking about how to manage our finances. And so I come from a, a perspective that we're in the real world, right? And I know it sounds a bit facetious, but when you're with a company where so much focus can be on what's happening on your device or what's happening in that mobile app, sometimes you can forget that we're working with people not only people as in customers, but also the associates, the people on the other line, other side of the line, I should say, 
when you call in and you're trying to figure out something on your account. And so more often than not, it's very easy, I think, for the business-minded folks that say, for instance, you know, a team within Capital One that's bringing a new feature to life or focused on the, the credit cards or, or the rewards from those cards to get into a very digital-only mindset. And part of what I do as a creative technologist and as someone who has a lot of experience in physical design is to help everyone think holistically and to zoom out and think about how we're still very much operating in real life. And there's certain things that people will want to do, whether it's supporting organizations, whether it's how they go about buying a car. Yes, there's an online experience, but most of what we're doing is still in the real world. And so I, I bring that perspective, I think, to to Capital One. And so with that, you know, thinking of the kind of physical experience, I'm trying to remember, I think there was a, I don't know, this may have been earlier this year. This year has been three years long, but uh, I know that there was this uh, this concept with Capital One kind of merging banking with a coffee shop in a way. Right. And and so when you said earlier about how like we we're constantly banking, that did have me think about like, yeah, we are. And, you know, during this year particularly, but I would say in general, we are always sort of budgeting in a way in our heads, like doing back of the envelope math, that kind of thing when it comes to a lot of transactions and such. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, what's interesting is how much even places like the Capital One cafes have become prominent in the discussion of some of the projects I'm a part of right now at Capital One. In fact, we're working on a Black History Month installation for five of the cafes for February. And it's huge. It's huge because it's not just thinking about people coming off the street and potentially coming into an ATM vestibule and taking out cash. It's thinking about how does that connect to what they're able to do with their account? Is there a form of activism that we can encourage? Is there some history that we can tell? And all of that is still happening within the context of a space. The ATM vestibule is a space that you're still doing business in and Capital One still has a physical footprint. So it's very much connected in my mind. That sounds so interesting, a, a banking campaign around mm-hmm. Black History Month in that way, because it, it reminds me of the many varied and creative ways that Black people have come up with when it comes to making money and saving money, whether mm-hmm. it's like rent parties or, I mean, I grew up in the deep South and I know, I remember vividly my parents being part of a social savings club, like mm-hmm. all these different sort of concepts around, I don't know if it's necessarily out of a mistrust of the financial system, but you know, we're very creative when it comes to money. Oh, so true. And trust <laughs> is a, oh my goodness. Trust is a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. And very, very much, I would say, an aspect of what I feel like is foundational to rebuilding the connections between huge financial organizations like a Capital One and the African American community. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, and I remember periods of time growing up in Indianapolis where I would spend my entire Saturday within basically a shopping mall area that had nothing but black-owned businesses. We would go from the barbershop to we would go to a store that was owned by by someone who was black, you know, and there were hair salons. It was, you know, I remember spending time 
at this area, this this shopping area in Indianapolis, and uh, and just how amazing that would be for me later on to 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 reflect back on that, even now being a part of an organization like Capital One, and thinking a lot about how do we establish trust because there's a long, really difficult history as. Um, many of us know between you know a financial org and and the black community yeah so significant work i think at capital one interesting in in many ways because a lot of times the question starts out like what are you doing at capital one (laughs) yeah (laughs) what is sort of a typical day like for you right now wow in 2020 Oh, wow. You know, it's so, so wild because every time I think about a typical day in 2020, it opens up a conversation about a lot of other things beyond anything work related. I think the work is, that's very much part of my year. Been fortunate in this uh, 2020, like you said, it's like been like three years in one to stay employed, to be employed. But the typical day, uh, there hasn't been a typical day. <laughs> Sometimes there there hasn't even been a, a typical, I would say, half of a day. I mean, literally, I've had days where every hour is different. I'm thinking of a, a moment where, and I don't know why this moment, Maurice, came to mind, but I'm thinking about when John Lewis passed, and I was watching the funeral but I had two meetings set up and they were one was really consequential. I couldn't get out of it. I was a lead on one of the projects. And that day I remember having like four screens open. I had like my iPad, I had my personal laptop open, I had the the funeral streaming, I, I had a chat room open on my iPad, and then I had my work laptop and display. Uh, my second display setup so I could present, I could, you know, still be a part of that meeting. It was crazy. It was like, and I felt physically exhausted, not just mentally and emotionally exhausted, but literally I got to lunch and I was just physically exhausted. And it wasn't even lunch. I was just, it was like two in the afternoon and I'm like, just trying to scarf down something to eat. And (laughs) I would say the typical day has been trying to figure out how to manage the day so that I have some consistent elements in the day. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It's like, you know, trying to find some consistent rhythm in the day so that I can go through what I know could potentially be a, a super different day. No, that makes Even sense. Like, I mean, we're, we're, we're creatures <laughs> of habit, you know, and, you know, certainly there's been many disruptions this year that have interrupted those habits. And so it makes sense, you know, that you logically we want to try to get back to a routine to a a place of semi normalcy so we can try to persist through this time so i totally understand that oh man you uh, you said it perfectly and that's really it maybe i'm searching for some some degree of normalcy and maybe that's why i've tried to establish certain cues in the day whether it's starting the day with a walk listening to like npr news to start the day, like it's, it's become habitual just because, you know, so many of those other rhythms for, for better or for worse, or they were gone after March. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a good anchor, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a turbulent time. So I, I totally get that. Yeah. So like prior to your work at Capital One, from what I can tell from, you know, just my research, you've been working in Silicon Valley for quite a while. I mean, you've worked at companies, <laughs> including Facebook, 
Dolby Labs, Scully. Mm-hmm. You've also been an entrepreneur with your own studio called Forecast. That's right. Forecast Studios. That's right. How has it been different being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley versus being an employee in Silicon Valley? Especially because there's so much of both. When I came out to the Bay, which was in 2013, it was probably, to many, one of the most, I would say, most inspirational moments for for transients, people who aren't from the Bay who are coming out here because the city was changing really quickly, but it had incredible energy. And a lot of that energy was because not only did you have the startups, you also had companies like Uber, LinkedIn, you did have the Facebooks and the Google and the Amazons of the world who were hitting another gear, so to speak. And they were pulling people in from all over the place. And so while there was a big difference between being in a startup and being at a really large startup, so to speak, like joining an Airbnb that's growing really fast. The nature of being even with a company that was already, you know, public, like being joining a, a Google or or joining even at that stage an eBay or Samsung or Logitech or or anyone really in tech, there were certain characteristics that I think were were shared and, and you saw this sort of permeate in all these different respects. In the environment, right? Like a lot of these companies, both startup and in-house really cater to, and this was my perspective at the time, Maurice, was keeping the employee there. Like retention was a big thing because people had a lot of skills, they had a lot of knowledge. And initially, in my perspective, what they would do in the environment was encourage people to have a great time. It was meant to give you all the snacks, all the uh, the bean bags and the games and everything else you could imagine so that you would spend your day on campus. <laughs> I mean, you know, the bikes at Facebook and Google, if you were at a startup, people would, you know, encourage visits from food trucks and I mean any and everything to to make the environment such that you would hang out. And so one of the things that was almost I would say similar between the two was how much time you could spend at, at one of these companies because they just had so many functions and so many things to keep you there. I would say the difference, though, was in probably the, the growth and in terms of the, the, the fail and success rate. Because if you landed at a larger company, even if they were still arguably a startup, so they were still in the, in the process of raising Series C or trying to go public, generally speaking... The people I knew from those companies were able to last a year and a half, two years, sometimes even longer before either transitioning or they got the, the gold pot at the end of the rainbow. They were able to to stay through through a public offering. And it wasn't necessarily the same for a lot of my friends who were in startups because that journey could end really abruptly, right? It could end quickly and it could be it could be kind of ugly. So I knew people who, once you join the startup, the growth in terms of the experience was hyper. But if the growth of the company hit a ceiling, even for a couple of weeks, you were in trouble because the company wasn't going to make it. The, the product was failing, bad reviews, you ran out of money. And there were plenty of people who would dance between freelance and startups. And they would do that off and on for a couple of years. So security was a... And I use that word 
loosely, but that was a big, a big difference between those two. Hmm. It's funny you, you kind of mentioned that sort of aspect around startups and security, because I think there's certainly a lot of allure. And certainly, I think around the time that you got to the Bay, <laughs> there was a lot of allure about yes. like, oh, we're going to get out to the Bay and like be the next yes. Mark Zuckerberg, or yes. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to have my multi-million dollar idea. Yes. But like, there are so, true. so many people that are coming there, not only with that same mindset, but also, right. like you said, it's a, it's a gamble. It's really stressful, one, to kind of be jumping between those two modes. But yeah, you could align at a startup that may sound great, you're doing great work and things like that. But then when the money runs out, it's like, oh, well, oh, next, wow. you have to kind of move on to the next thing. I mean, I, I personally experienced that this year when I, when I lost my job. <laughs> I mean, I can laugh about it now because by the time this comes out, I'll be working somewhere else. But <laughs> earlier this year, it came about somewhat abruptly and rather clumsily, but it happened and you know, like you said, it, it can get ugly. I know for some people it was really bad for me. And I think one, because I knew it was a startup going into it. So I knew what to expect, but two also, and this may be something that is more, and I might be speaking as an older person here, but something that tends to be more correlated with youth is the amount of sort of personal value that you put in where you work and what you do. And I never have really ascribed to, I guess, wrapping myself up much with all of that, you know, like, yes, I work at this company and do this job, but that's not who I am. So if I lose this job, it's not, I mean, is it a blow to me personally and professionally? Yes. But like, it's not the end all be all if I'm not working at company X or whatever. Does that make sense? Oh, it not only does it make sense. I think Maurice, it's probably one of the most, let me put it this way. I'll take that word back. Most I'll say it's the least discussed thing in terms of the journey of any designer, creative, or just anyone who was really in the midst of, of tech during that period of time. Because identity, and I'm speaking personally, this was my experience for sure, identity was so wrapped up into a startup. I mean, it was almost at an obsession level. Like to have a hoodie with the name of my company on it, mm-hmm. I can tell you truthfully for a period of time, that was a big deal. Because I would look around the room and everybody had the hoodie on with the name of the company on it and the water bottle and the book bag and someone brought their dog to work so the dog has like a leash with the name of the company on it i mean it was an (laughs) obsession to be a part of a company especially if it was a company that had an evaluation that was climbing that was constantly you know on tech crunch constantly being talked about as a as a silicon valley darling i mean that or unicorn like these were the words and it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were, if you were black, didn't matter, didn't matter if you were from some other country. If you had the book bag and the t-shirt and the hoodie and everything else, identity was so wrapped up in the company. And it was for me so hard sometimes to separate my life from what I was doing at the company. Not only what what I believed in, what they were doing, what they were trying to to do in their meteoric rise to the top, but also just personally the work I was doing because I I really felt like if I don't show up, we're not going to build the fibers of of the company. We're not going to the creative isn't going to be what it needs to be. We're not going to connect the dots with the design. So you know, to your point, I learned the hard way how 
incredibly important it is to separate, to create that, that ba- create those boundaries. I didn't know that. That was something that I feel naive about it sometimes, but because a lot of people would be like, oh my gosh, yeah, dude, you're working all the time. And, but sometimes, you know, it didn't feel like work because, you know, you hear that statement all the time. If you, if you're doing what you love, it doesn't even feel like you're working a- until, you know, you look up and I'm like, man, I'm gaining weight. I'm out of shape. I can barely walk up a hill in San Francisco or I'm losing weight. I'm not eating well. <laughs> There's nothing but candy and 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 uh, snacks around here. And, uh, you know, it's really it would sneak up on me and it snuck up on a lot of people. So I think that's a huge point that you're identifying right there is the the fibers weave together quite tightly sometimes between someone who's working in the professional design creative dev space and and the company and the brand Mm -hmm. yeah let's kind of switch gears here a little bit you mentioned growing up in the midwest you grew up in indianapolis grew up in indiana naptown grew up naptown (laughs) (laughs) do you remember kind of being around a lot of like design and art and everything growing up no not really i had a really great upbringing in terms of exposure to to being curious about the world mostly because my mom my mom was a, a teacher for a number of years secondary education my dad my dad worked for a while at a church he was a minister worked at one of the the largest african american churches in indianapolis and so they were always deeply curious my dad was always reading doing research on hebrew and greek and, and my but my mom my mom always instilled a level of curiosity from the time i was probably you know, six or seven, I remember going to museums with her. She would take us to museums on the weekend. I fell in love with museums because of my mom and would always go to museums. I still go to museums now, but that started as a kid. That was my exposure, I think, to art or anything creative was an expression that I would see in museums in Indianapolis or Chicago, where I had extended family. But design, not in the sense that I mean, you and I would talk about design now. Mm-hmm. What yeah. would you say your family kind of cultivated within you in terms of what you would end up doing with your life? Like, were there certain aspects they tried to push you towards or anything like that? Oh, yeah, I think so. Academia was a big part of it. I come from a culture where, you know, we were really the first, my parents, that was the first generation of, of you know, folks going to college in my family. And so because of that, they had an expectation that we would go to college. We didn't really come from a a military family, although we had some military in our family. But the expectation was clear, like you hit 18 and you're either going to college or you're going to the military or you're going to bag groceries at, at the local store. And it was like, wow, okay, so, you know, it wasn't like so much pressure as much as it was just like an expectation because we've sacrificed, we did these things for you to, to encourage you to, to go to school, to try to get you in the best neighborhood we could. And you, you need to go to school, you need to go get your education, you need to get a job, and you need to keep a job. <laughs> and for as long as you can and, and earn, 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 earn. That was the push, I would say, sometimes, you know, that was the attitude. Nothing wrong with that. But that was sort of the, the expectation for for many of us, and including, you know, myself where I grew up. Yeah. I know that feeling all too well. I mean, this was, I'm thinking for me, it was, and not to, to completely make this all about comparisons or anything, but I know what you mean about that sort of 
push to make sure that what you're going into college for is something that's going to be lucrative. Right. It's less about, <laughs> it, yeah, it's less about, that's oh, important. this is what I really like to do or this is what my yeah. passion is. It's like, what are you going to do that's going to get you a job that's going to make you some money so you can take care of me? 100%. I totally get that. Is that what, because I know you end up going to Kettering and you you majored in mechanical engineering. Is that sort of the impetus behind that? I think so. You know, here's what's interesting about being in high school is for me, I was all over the place. I mean, I kept up with school, but I was, you know, trying to do sports. I was trying to do extracurricular activities. I was out with buddies. I mean, I was, uh, I was in high, high school, school yeah. all over the place. I loved drawing. I remember for two years, I took drawing as an elective and I loved it. And this is consequential for a lot of reasons. And this is why I'm sharing this. But I remember loving drawing. But I remember the kids who they really focused on were the kids who were going to art school. And to your point of what you just said about it's got to be lucrative. I would sometimes bring up that thought of like, man, maybe I'll go to art school. And it was like, brother, you better get a job. I don't know if art school is going to pay the bills. And at 17, it was like, all right, well, you know, I maybe I should do something, you know, that's going to pay the bills. And when I heard about Kettering, it actually came through, it was kind of a, a two degrees of separation moment because my senior year, I was in a program called the Minority Engineering Program of Indianapolis. Found out about it through a counselor who, who was invested in me. You know, we always have people along the way who, who get invested in us. And she knew I was good in, in, um, in math. I had done pretty well in math. She said, you know, you, you kind of like building stuff and you should check it out. And long story short, that was a game changer because I met, I still have a couple of friends from MePi today. That's, it was called MePi for short. And it was all, it was all African-Americans about 15 or 16 students from different high schools. And we would meet once a month on Saturdays. And at that particular time, they were, they were doing mostly mechatronic projects. So there was no coding or anything like this, but they focused on engineering based projects and, and the people who would teach it were black professionals that worked at Eli Lilly or Cummins. And they would volunteer their time on a Saturday and they come in and, and most of them had went to Purdue or, Rolls-Holman or Carnegie Mellon. And, and so they were the ones who would tell us about studying engineering in college. And so my senior year, one of the, the uh, folks who came on Saturdays, she had attended Kettering and she was working for Cummins. And she knew someone who was looking for folks to come over to an automotive supplier in Kokomo, Indiana called Delphi. And so I ended up getting sort of wrapped into a conversation about, well, what if you co-opt over here at Delphi? You know, you could use that money to pay your bills for college. You could get experience. And so when my mom found out about this, she was all for it. She was like, hey, this is going to let you work. You, you know, you could get your degree. So I really think that to some degree, I would credit the encouragement at that stage to her for saying, hey, you know, maybe you should check out this Kettering thing. My head was like, I'm trying to go to Atlanta. <laughs> I'm looking at Morehouse. You know, I got friends who are who are trying to get out of the state. And at that particular moment, like Atlanta was like Mecca. Yeah. You know I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it still is in some ways. But at that point, 
in 2003, I mean, Atlanta was Mecca. And I was like, I got to get to Atlanta. What, what is this Kettering thing in Flint, Michigan? I'm trying to leave the Midwest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's how it happened. So what was your time at, at Kettering like? Oh, my goodness. It was uh, very different than what I expected. In many ways, it was probably one of the best experiences of, of my life so far because some of the closest friends that I have came from being at that school. And I got a lot of experience because we would co-op, right? We would do three months of school, three months off, and, and we'd go to a company as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old and work in some capacity day-to-day at a company. I put on a collared shirt, slacks from... Macy's and I would just I would go in every day I had a badge at 20 and you know they would have us do you know different projects and then I would come back to school and I'd be on campus in Flint and it was a lot of it was a lot of work they encourage a degree of professional focus early I mean I still had a good time I still you know play some intramural basketball I mean you know we would hang out we would go over to East Lansing for uh, football games, but it was tough. Kettering was, I remember Kettering being really hard and thinking to myself, man, is this worth it? (laughs) From an academic perspective, and a lot I can say about Kettering, a lot of good things, because there were certainly some, some people there that helped me get through that school financially, helped point me to some scholarships, and helped me be resilient. Because I'll be honest with you, I did not want to stay at Kettering especially the first year. It was cold. Like it was a different level of cold. (laughs) Different from Indianapolis? (laughs) It was cold. It was different, man. I don't know if it's that lake up there, Maurice, or what, but and I had to go to campus and study calculus. I'm like, dude, what am I doing? Or I'd be in the (laughs) library. And I I knew how to study because again, academia, my mom from the time we were kids had taught us, here's how you approach school. So I knew how to study. And I'll be honest with you, I was I was not, you know, and I, I mean this sincerely, I was not like the the smart, like, okay, I can I can sleep through this class and, and and get a B on the test. It was like, no, 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 no. I didn't have that type of brain. I had the type of brain where like if I didn't make some flashcards and sit with a with a tutor or go to some of the uh the Nesby tutorial sessions, I was in trouble. <laughs> That was me. I, you know, I roughed it through engineering school. It was rough, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like sort of to what you were saying before about how your, you know, your parents and folks try to push you into these sort of into these industries that are going to be lucrative, but unfortunately it's not something that even they know about in terms of the rigor of these, you know, programs and what you have to go through. I mean, I hear about it from folks that go to art school about how it's very similar. But I mean, I remember, you know, when I was in school, like I dropped out of my computer programming courses Mm -hmm. in the curriculum because I was like, it's not what I want to do. And it was hard. It was very difficult to learn. It's it's funny you mentioned calculus because I ended up getting a degree in math. So like I switched over to something else. I was (laughs) like, oh, okay, this is this is kind of more my speed. But there's a lot of like contorting that you have to do to sort of fit within this and you're doing it, or at least you you may feel like you're doing it for the right reason. But you know, eventually, I don't know. When you graduated from Kettering and you had your had your degree and you had this experience from Delphi, like, how did you feel? Oh, that's so good. I felt like I needed to get out 
and I needed to see more of the world. And I felt that way because when I was at Kettering, I did an exchange program for, or sorry, a study abroad program rather, for six months. And I was in Europe. And as a black man, that changed my entire viewpoint of many things. It was my first real, like, far away international trip. And when I left Kettering, I remember the first thing I wanted to do was go to Africa. Like, that was my attitude at that point. I was like, man, I want to go. I want to travel. And I wanted at that particular point to just spend time creating. I remember 2007 when I finished traveling to Africa. I went to South Africa. I went to Zimbabwe. I was really into photography, really into having, I was painting a lot more. I mean, it was funny because I was doing the engineering thing during the day. And as soon as I would get home, I was like editing photos. I discovered Photoshop, like old school Photoshop. I had uh, started painting. I had an oil class or two. I, I set up a canvas basically turned part of where I was living into a studio. So I really feel like when I finished Kettering, I just, I wanted to see the world. I felt like the engineering thing was for me, checking the box. Like I felt like, okay, I got to stay ah, job. I got a paycheck. And I liked the people I worked with. I mean, they were smart. I was still, even at, in, at the engineering role, I was still super curious. You know, I was always working on something that would turn into something, you know, patent or I was always doing stuff like that. It was it was never enough for me to to just sort of like, I don't know, fill out the Excel sheets and call it a day. I, I was just a curious person. That's really interesting. You you refer to it as checking the box. Like, mm-hmm. okay, got the degree, did this check. Now you can go and move on to the thing that you really want to do or that you're really sort of passionate about. Because it sounds like after that travel and then now branching on to art, you're like, okay, I, I sort of have the freedom now to do this because I've established the stability by going through the four years and building this foundation. That's what it sounds like, at least. It was really that. I mean, because anything related to my creative journey emerged. And it is what it is. I mean, obviously, you know, no going back, but I'm sure, you know, we all do this, right? But there are plenty of moments where I'm like, man, I wish I somehow could have got started on a professional creative journey earlier or, or design journey earlier. And it, I just didn't really know how I didn't really know that was a thing. It was like, it was, it was like, it was around me. I just didn't know how to convert on it. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? No, that makes sense. I, I get what you're saying. Like you, you know that it's something that now you have the, the capacity and the bandwidth to sort of take on and really go into, but you're kind of lost as to how to do it. Yes. That's exactly how it was. <laughs> is, is that what led you to Atlanta? That's what led me to Atlanta. That's the perfect segue. All uh, right. Maurice, you, nailed, <laughs> you nailed that, man. That was smooth. That was, man, landed that plane smooth. That was it. That's what led me to uh, Georgia Tech. I, was, I spent so much time working on all types of stuff, building stuff, like working on furniture on the side, painting. And eventually, I remember I went to... Troy, Michigan for a business trip. This is I was still working with Delphi when I graduated. And I'll never forget this. You know how we have these moments where the curtain gets pulled back and you're like, oh, all right, that's the Wizard of Oz. That's what happened for me when I went to Troy to a General Motors. It was a General Motors. I don't remember exactly what the location 
was for. I don't know if it was one of their design centers. I can't remember clearly, but I, what I do remember and what matters is I was walking through the building and I walked past like a room where the lights were really low and everyone had, I didn't know what they were called at the time. They had their Wacom's and their pens out and they're sketching. And I'm looking in and I'm like, man, they're sketching cars. And it was beautiful. I mean, you know, I knew if, obviously, you know, someone's got to design these cars. Someone's doing that somewhere, but I had never seen it. And when I saw those renderings and I looked through this, all this glass and I saw these folks in there, I looked straight through and there was a studio in the middle of the room and they were carving clay. They were carving out clay cars. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, I don't even know what this is called. I just, this is what I want to do. And it wasn't so much like, oh, I want to design cars. It was like, where are these people doing this? Who Who is designing these things? And like, how do I get here? How, it was like, Maurice, it was like I was working backwards for a couple of years trying to figure out how do I get to the beginning of the thing? Like who who's conceptualizing, who's bringing this stuff into the world? Like I know someone's doing it, but I just, I hadn't seen it. At that point, everything started to change. I, that's when I was like, it went from like, oh, maybe I'll go back and get my, my master's in engineering or I'll get an MBA because the MBA was so popular for engineers, especially, I would say, black engineers, young black engineers coming out at that time. I was like, oh, go get your MBA. And I was like, I want to go to art school. I want to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> it's a true story. I was like, man, what is this? How do I do this? How do I get into this? that was the pivot. I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to say, all right, well, maybe art school, maybe design, you know, and I didn't even know what design really meant. I was just like, oh, they're designing cars. Like, and the internet, you know, at that point, Google let me start to, to search, you know, I was like, all right, well, what pops up if I type in design? And that's how it started. And then with that, you eventually kind of made the move to a design company. You worked for IDEO for a bit. Worked for IDEO. Yep, coming out of school. What yep. was that like? <laughs> it's a bit of a leading question. I, I realize that, but I've, we've had IDEO folks on um, before, and I've gotten varied, you know, responses to that. But what was it like for you? Oh, I'm gonna give you the real because this is—I get so many questions. You would not imagine how many questions I get about IDEO just via LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever over the years. Like I've gone to places and worked and people are, well, how was IDEO? It is probably the number one question after, well, how do I be creative, Don, that I get. I mean, people ask that question a lot. And I will tell you at the time when I was finishing up industrial design, which is what I studied, I tra it was traditional ID. I say traditional because at that time, Everybody was just starting to make the switch over to talking about user experience, UX, UI. How do we get more, you know, HCI, you know, human computer interaction? How do we partner with the schools that are doing more comp work? It was just happening when I was in school and I was still like shaving models in the shop, right? Like there wasn't like that symbiotic connection yet between like, you know, research and, and UX and, and ID. It was coming. But, you know, I was sort of like that transitional. We were sort of that transitional class. But I had a good portfolio. And when I was finishing up and I knew I was going to go back into industry, at first I was like, I got to go to Tesla. I'm like, you know, I got automotive experience. These guys are doing something really cool. These cars look amazing. That was my attitude. It was like, either I'll go back to Tesla or, sorry, I'll start at Tesla or I'll go back to 
automotive in the Midwest. I'll go back to Delphi or GM. And they were eager to get me back because they had, they, they never really, I was still sort of working for Delphi when I went to grad school. I was able to sort of keep that connection. But I wanted the studio experience, which is what I had in grad school, where you would come in, open space, everybody's got junk everywhere that they're making, sketches on the wall, renderings on the wall. And I wanted that. You know, it was I was a part of a class of 12 and it was like I wanted that that feeling of pin up. And I was like, yeah, if I could work in that environment, great. And everything I had read about IDEO was that, you know, the pin ups, the renderings, you're working on all these different projects. I had read some of their books, right? Some of their books had creeped into our our literature. So I I thought maybe IDEO, but I had no clue how to get into um, a consultancy. And so I don't share this story often, but I'll mention it quickly here. I was actually interning. I was fortunate enough to not intern. I was I was freelancing as a, it was my last year of grad school at Coca-Cola. And my thesis professor, the professor who was really guiding me with that, knew a VP, assistant VP of brand content and marketing at Coca-Cola in Atlanta. And so I got an incredible opportunity to go to Coca-Cola for six months, my last year, and work at Coca-Cola. And I was in the thick of it. I was reading their their 300-page brand book. I was learning visual design. As an industrial designer, I was getting beat up. I was around some people who were working with 50 Cent and Vitamin Water at that time, LeBron and Sprite, and like their work it was so inspiring. Like It was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And so I was at the time thinking, maybe I can get a job at Coca-Cola. And then, true story, I remember one of the directors from the Boston studio, the IDEO Boston studio, came to Coca-Cola to talk about human-centered design. And I listened to him. I thought it was amazing. And afterwards, you know, a bunch of people stuck around and, you know, were waiting to talk to him. You, you know how that can go. And I went up to him. I said, hey, man, I'm Donald finishing up school. I've read a lot about IDEO, you know, would absolutely love to figure out how do you even apply to be there? And I remember he looked at me and said, hey, you know what, man, I like your initiative. Hit me up on Twitter. That's what he said. Hit me up on Twitter. I said, okay. <laughs> this is like uh, 2011. And I did. I hit him up on Twitter and like... I don't know, maybe a couple months later, a recruiter reached out as I was finishing up school and said, hey, can you come to Boston and interview? And I had never been to Boston <laughs> in my life. And I went to Boston because, I, like I said, this is right before school ended. I went to Boston in January. And and for those folks who don't know about Boston in January, that's a different world, man, in January. I felt like when we landed, I was already cold. I'm still on the plane. I'm like, man, I'm freezing. <laughs> and I, uh, I got to IDEO and it was so cool, right? When I walked in, I mean, I had never been in a studio first time. And there it was. It was all these rooms, you know, glass, renderings pinned up everywhere, models of products, images that people were using for web dev stuff for brand. Everything was just, it was visual stimuli all over the place. And I kid you not, I came into a room and I'll keep it really real, man, because I was nervous. 
not just because it was, you know, an interview. It was my first real portfolio presentation as a professional. And I'm in a room. I'm trying to figure out how to best describe this. I'm in a room that's, it's small. Like it could really only hold, let's say comfortably, maybe six to eight people. And all of a sudden I have maybe, I would say close to 15 people in there. Everybody is white. And it was my first experience where I'm staring at this room. Everybody's white. Everybody's staring at me. And and I'm just like, all right, be confident. This is a moment, right? I present the portfolio, go through my work. I'm sweating. I'm nervous, trying to figure out, you know, how, what are they evaluating? Am I even showing the right work? I'm showing everything, too. I'm, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at them. ID work, thesis work. And we get to the end, and I'll never forget this. It's certain things you just don't forget. Somebody in the room, one of the other directors, he was looking at me, and I could tell he was looking at me the whole time like, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know. Like he was giving me that look. And I don't remember verbatim what he asked me, but you know, he was like, kind of asked me one of those questions like, did you really do this work? Is this you? Like, did, did, is this all your work? Kind of question. And at the time, I didn't really have the tools to manage confidence, arrogance, ego. Like I couldn't separate all that. It was just one, it was one planet. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I, it was like, I couldn't gauge like, do, am I being egotistical? Am I being overly confident? Am I just, do I need to be confident? And everything hit at once. The being black in a room with all white faces and I remember I was sweating. My fingertips were sweating. And I remember I picked up my sketchbook because I was at the time, I was a really good sketcher. And I just pushed the sketchbook over to him and he starts flipping through it. And the sketches were killer at the time. I was at the point where I was sketching every day. And I had learned from a good professor at Georgia Tech. So my sketching was my thinking. Like if I could think it, I could put it down, I could turn it in space. And he starts passing the sketchbook around to everybody else. And he didn't say anything, but everybody else was like, oh, wow. Oh, oh, wow. This is impressive. Wow, man, your sketches are beautiful. Oh, dude. That. Oh, wow. You know, And it was like the whole room started talking. And, and it was like a moment I'll never forget because I'm just kind of like eye contact with him, like, you know, like a marshal. Like we were getting ready to do a draw. Like, and I remember in my heart, man, in my mind thinking like, you, you're doubting me, bro? I just finished Georgia Tech. I just knocked out a six-month thing at Coca-Cola. Like, I'm a pencil fresh, sharp, you know, freshly sharpened. <laughs> I'm like, you're doubting skill. And I had never experienced that because coming from the engineering world and the professional world, yeah, sure, I would experience, you know, some doubt, maybe to some degree, some prejudice or something. But there was never anything that really hit me where it was like, ooh, that feels really weird, man. You know, because everything was so technical. I was generally surrounded by engineers who were just telling me, hey, get this done, done, finish this up. And then in my more casual time on the engineering side at work, I would hang out with other African-American directors, would go to lunch with them. So I, I felt kind of shielded. I knew all of that. I, it wasn't like I was blind to like racism or discrimination or anything like that. It's just that that wasn't my day-to-day -day experience as an engineer. And it wasn't my experience in grad school because, again, I'm, I'm sort of in a bubble. And when I stepped into the design world, especially at IDEO, 
a lot of times, because I got the job, long story short, they came back after that and gave me the job. I ended up leaving Atlanta and I moved to Cambridge and lived in, and I actually lived in Watertown of all places and, and worked at IDO. That became, Maurice, probably one of the most difficult things to discern when I was at IDEO. I'm like, are you doubting me because my age, my experience, because I'm black, because, you know, I speak with an authoritative tone at times when I know I'm right. Like there were so many moments where I felt as if I was just a fish out of water. And there were some incredible things that I, I learned, right? Like the IDEO ticket on my resume or my portfolio for a long time, it still does to some degree, it holds a lot of weight because it said, hey, you were able to work at one of the most recognized, well-renowned design consultancies out there with an incredible history. But, you know, the Boston experience was such that it 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 was it galvanized aspects of me that I, I didn't know I would I would need to strengthen, you know, the resiliency, the relationship, the soft aspects of being black in design, I think really started to they had to grow when I was at IDEO. There was no other way around it because there were going to be days and I didn't know this. There were going to be days where initially nobody would talk to me. It was like, do I go up and have a conversation? Do I just sit here and wait till I'm on a project? That was my experience for the first couple of months. I would go up and I was inquisitive and I would try to ease my way into the studio. And then I would ask certain people who were supposed to be mentors what I should do. And I remember just feeling so lost in that culture and thinking every day, like, am I doing good? Like, was this the right decision? So eventually, yeah, I got some projects where I did some great work. I made a few connections with folks who really saw my talent, saw my drive. I worked incredibly hard on a lot of that work that I did when I was there. And and it gave me some incredible experiences that I would have never had. I mean, IDEO, IDEO gives you a ticket, right, to a lot. I mean, I spent 12 days in Japan. I walked the floor of Wall Street, right, the trading floor, right, which, you know, incredible. I, I mean, I, I had some incredible experiences that I perhaps would not have been able to have without the IDEO ticket. But it was certainly an experience where a lot of times I wondered about how I was doing, how I was being perceived. Performance was always a question. I always had concerns about whether I was actually connecting with people, relating to people. I think the, the nature of a lot of the people in the studio being white and being from that region of the country had a big impact on how that culture was. I think IDEO has its own culture. and. I do remember, I won't say her name, she's incredible, but one of the other black designers who was there, she ended up going over to Slack. And she's a huge design name um, mm-hmm. coming out of Slack now. I know she you're talking there. about. I know you're talking about, but oh, go ahead. I, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to, you know, I was like, can I say her name? But she was there and I sat with her multiple times. She's a lifesaver. You know, I won't say her name. If you do, Maurice, that's perfect. Can Maybe I'll just say her first name. She was, Christy was a lifesaver because she was there and I remember sitting with her and she was, I never forget these certain things you just don't forget. And she's like, Donald, just, just get your time in, you know, converse, get your time in here. I know it's rough. I know it's rough for all these reasons you're talking about. You're good. No one wants to acknowledge what you're putting out there in terms of the solution. You doubt yourself sometimes. 
you know, you're not sure if it's coming from you or from them. She's like, get your time in, make your connections, because this is going to open up a lot of doors. And Christy was like a life. There were certain people there who were lifesavers for me. I was there in all totality. I think it was 16 months finish. It was not a long period of time at IDL for me, but I was there. I got in, I was there, I put in the 16 months I did, and I left voluntarily only after I was recruited to come out to uh, to Dolby. Wow. Talk about connections. Great. I mean, I, I know I know Christy, that's the homie. She's been on the show before. And for people that are listening, actually, next week's interview is my update with Christy Tillman. So y'all will get to kind of see what she's working on and stuff now. But Wow, that's talk about that's amazing. It was a homie when I was there. Or I would say, you know, Christy, there was another woman, Angie Kim. I mean, there were there were probably three or four people that and Christy was one of them that, you know, heart to heart in one of the studio rooms and they're giving me the game on how to play this game. And I'm a young green like i'm at ideo but it, it was like what do i do like why does this suck why is this hard and it's not just the project i mean the project work was rough amazing but it was really tough work but the cultural dynamic that was even harder wow it almost feels like you have to be superhuman by design Whoa. in order to go through this kind of experience which also Whoa. is the title of your newest book Ooh, thank you. That is like absolutely the most amazing segue ever. Tell me about the book. You know, this is probably one of the, if not the biggest project I've brought to life for all types of reasons. One, because it's a book (laughs) to start. And I truly underestimated how much work goes into bringing a book to life, especially when it's brought to life by someone who loves design. And I knew I wanted it to be fantastic. I wanted it to be something so inspirational for people that it was worth their time and their money. So it started out as just wanting to tell my story. And thanks to a couple of really talented editors, not only am I finishing it in 2020, which is that's a story in and of itself, right? Because we, we haven't talked about 2020 in terms of how that has impacted just design. But it's it's incredible because I really think it's something even more than a book. I really think I'm on to something that is is about living our fullest potential despite whatever life throws at us. I call it superhuman by design. It's actually coming out in December, December 11th. And the subtitle is Keys to Unlocking Your Creativity for Life-Changing Results. And there's a couple of key components to it because there's a lot in that one phrase, superhuman by design. You know, people are like, well, what do you mean? There's... So part of the journey of bringing the book together was unpacking what I meant by superhuman by design. And I was trying to do two things at once. I was trying to create a concept. And I was also trying to tell my story and what I've learned from my story and put it in a way so that it becomes like a principles. Because I, I, I feel like if I'm able to give something to people beyond just my story, beyond just like, hey, here's what happened, maybe they can take the lessons I've learned and they can actually you know, consider those as they're 
going down their own creative journey. So that's really what this superhuman by design is about. It's it's unlocking the innate creativity that we all have, that we've all been given, our innate talents, those abilities, those strengths that people just identify, you know, sometimes for us. They'll point them out even sometimes before we do. And I wanted to write a book around that. So to put it in short, superhuman by design at the top level is a big concept, which we can unpack if there's a moment to do so. The core of it is about my creative journey. It's, it's what you and I have been uh, talking about. It's telling a story, which to me is so critical. Here I am as, a, as an African-American in the Bay during one of the most meteoric moments of the Bay, right? The rise of these Silicon Valley darlings, big billion dollar valuations and, and precipitous falls. And what that really looks like when you're on the ground in one of these companies or in several of these companies. I wanted to talk about ownership. What does it really look like to go from being at a company that's at the top of the world to crashing, to being bankrupt, to being unemployed the same day, and then a month later, starting an LLC, keeping portions of your team (laughs) that you hired on at the startup and starting your own company and being in the wild and literally having to win contracts to pay rent skyrocketing rent in San Francisco. And I was like, you know what? I want to tell that story because there's a lot of Silicon Valley stories out here, but not enough of them from people who look and sound like me. You know, you can go right now and you can pay 30 bucks. You can read about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and you get bad blood, right? Like here's a Silicon Valley story. And, and I'm not belittling any of these Silicon Valley stories. I want more stories from the likes of Tristan Walker. I want more stories from people who clearly had a lot of things stacked against them coming into the sometimes overly white, overly frat, overly, we want to shut you out world of tech when it's a lot of money flying around. So the heart of the story talks about my creative journey from IDEO to the Bay, being in the Bay. And how I had to constantly come back to understanding my value as a creative, not allowing myself to lose my identity through what happened with the rise and fall of a company, my ups and downs at a job, right? My ups and downs in a project that I was deeply invested in. I had to come back and look at my identity and say, you know what? I've been given a ton of creativity and you know what? I may not be the smartest person in the room. I may not be the richest person in the room, but how can I be the most creative person in the room in this moment? And why do I think that is so important for everyone else to latch on to? That's how I started to write this book. And as I started to write about creativity, I started thinking about that question that people would ask me when I would go on interviews in Silicon Valley. You know, they would be like, well, Don, what's your superpower? <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right. That's where we're starting today. Sure. And, you know, let's talk about superpowers. You know, like, I'm, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sure you've heard that question before. And, and we love it, right? doesn't matter if you love cosplay, if you love Marvel, like we love superheroes. We love super uh, human abilities. We love supernatural. We love superpowers. We throw super around all the time. We really do. We love that. That's, Hashtag super all day long, right? 
And I looked at that and I said, you know what, that's a source of inspiration, right? Because a lot of times the folks that we see as our icons, as our superheroes, not only are they doing amazing things, they just are amazing, right? When I think about the loss of like Kobe Bryant early at the beginning of this year, which I mean, seems like, again, three years ago, a lot of the pain of that loss was because, not just because this person was an icon and what they did, it was what this person had to come back from, mistakes. It was what this person had to achieve in the face of adversity, injuries. And ultimately, you saw the human aspect of Kobe just as much as you saw the super aspect of someone like that. And, you know, I'm just throwing that name out. But at the end of the day, my attitude is that we can all be superhuman. You don't have to be Kobe. You don't have to be, you know, someone within the design industry, Yves Bahar with a big name. You could be superhuman just by learning how to leverage your creativity. If you learn how to tap into those superpowers, if you learn how to use those things across multiple aspects of your life, and then more importantly, go through the process. And in this case, we're going to talk about the design process. I've seen amazing results. I see other people go through amazing results, deliver amazing results. And so that's what I started to do. I I started to just write a book around that. And I touched everything, creativity, design, design process, my creative journey, why it matters to other people, startup world, Silicon Valley, superheroes to keep it light and fun, and really just getting people to think about what is your your potential? Like, how is living your fullest potential of doing more and being more greater than just success as we know it? Because that matrix of, of success that is focused purely on like what I'm producing and what I'm gaining, I've had that. You know, I've had high highs, I've had low lows, and at the same time, I'm trying to be heroic in what I'm doing. I'm trying to be even super heroic because I'm trying to carry on the values of those who have invested in me, right? Like, I'm I'm trying to still have character when I'm high or when I'm low, right? Like, I'm trying to not be the person who's living far from a, a life of integrity, right? That core, that code, those values, those are held up by folks who are superhuman. They're challenged to do that because other people are looking at them and saying, well, man, we've invested a lot in you. You've gotten into school. You're the one who who ended up getting out, going to grad school. You did more. So we expect more. We expect you to keep it together if you become a millionaire. We expect you to give back even more. We expect you to not lose it if you're a failure in this moment and you, you feel like you've had a huge loss and you're sitting and and you just don't know where to go next, right? Like there's still a level of integrity and a level of resilience that I was expected to have because of the people who instilled those values that they're holding me to them, my community. So I, I had to write about that and and I had to put it in a form that allows for growth and development of my own journey, right? Because I'm I'm still on this journey, right? So if I wrote towards something that is exciting for me and is my North Star, I had the best of both worlds. I have a reference of my past and what I learned <laughs> in my creative journey. I got it all on paper, got it out of my system. There it is. Enjoy it if you get to it. That's the drama. But I also have something that I can continue to build towards. You know, like can I be superhuman? Can I be human first and empathize? and be compassionate. Yes. 
But beyond that, what is my response going to be? Well, I'm going to say we need to be super. We can't afford to be average. I can't afford to be average. You can't afford to be average. We have to do more and we have to be more. And by way of doing that, man, we are lifting up entire communities. So that's my book, Superhuman by Design. And I am hoping that come December, it's a key. It's a key to unlock a lot of doors for great conversations like what you and I are having. And I hope it it gives people some vitamins. I hope it really gives people some really great nutrients, soak it in <laughs> and, and and take from what I've done. You know, I'm I can relate to you on so many levels. You know, you others, I can relate because I've I've been in the trenches. So I want to give you something from that. I don't want to just like, okay, great. Now you you have this title at Capital One or Google or Amazon or whatever. Great. What can I give you from being in the trenches, from from all of the dust and the dirt and the shine? You know, what can I give you? I can give you this. That's how I feel about it. I get so passionate, Maurice. So thank you for allowing me to share anything about the book. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it really sounds like, you know, you've been able to distill a lot of your personal and professional experiences down into this book. And, you know, luckily, by the time this interview comes out, the book will be out. And so we'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes so people can can check it out. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, it'll be available December 11th. And through December 11th, I discovered just this week, you can actually pre-order it. So oh, nice. We're going to do as much promotion as possible through Christmas. So the timing is absolutely perfect. Nice. So aside from the book, what has been probably the most unexpected thing that you've learned about yourself this year? Wow, what a question. I had to breathe deep on that one. <laughs> I think I learned how valuable it is to have periods of time of managing being absolutely by yourself. I don't know if I really valued that before. I looked at it as I need to survive it when I'm absolutely by myself without connections, community. But I don't know if I really saw value in that. And to really explain that clearly, I'll just quickly say I had a moment in 2017 where I blew out my MCL and ACL playing basketball, just a pickup game. And I had to get surgery to repair my knee. And I was by myself, more or less, for two months, just kind of in my apartment, occasionally getting food dropped off from a friend or Uber Eats and, and sort of crutching around my place. I had a lot of couch time in the summer. Wasn't out, wasn't in the city. And it was a lot of alone time. And I sometimes was in pain, couldn't sleep. It was frustrating because I had always been a, a person who liked to move. I learned how to just survive, how to keep my mind together and not be so negative during that period of time. And that was extremely hard. I was very frustrated. But those were the training wheels, I think, for 2020 because I travel a lot and I had no clue that I was going to go from being in San Francisco every day with my my colleagues or my friends to just spending seven hours, eight hours, nine hours on Zoom, occasionally talking to a friend if I had energy left, sitting there on a Tuesday wondering when we were going to get out of quarantine or, or begging myself to, to figure out how do I get normalcy again. I think those training wheels from that injury 
allowed me to start to see the value of of being alone during this time. And I said, you know what? I got more time to create some. So let me start creating something. Let me let me figure out how I want to respond to everything happening, right? Like, you know, when I would watch the video of George Floyd dying, I immediately knew I wanted to respond. I didn't know how I was going to respond. And I saw friends putting out amazing posts. They were brave. They were the first to put out posts on LinkedIn, Facebook, any any platform, really, they were speaking out. And then I was looking at my phone and I had six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 messages from people, some of these folks I hadn't talked to in years. And everybody was like, are you okay? Everything okay? You all right? And I was overwhelmed in that moment. I, I didn't know how to really process my emotions because I was thinking like, man, in 2020, when has everything ever been okay? And I was thinking like, well, nobody was texting me when uh, COVID really popped off in San Francisco and we were all by ourselves. But, you know, it was almost like collectively there was this <sighs> energy that just said to everyone, text your, and I could be totally wrong, but we're going to keep it real. Text your one black friend right now and see if everything's good. And I remember responding to some people like, are you good? Are you okay? Are you all right? Because this is a crazy year before you watch the video, if you've watched the video, if you've been paying attention to anything happening this year or before. And I started putting so much energy into my responses, you know, taking people all the way back to like, do you know when, when Black Lives Matter started? Do you know the origin of that? Do you know, you know what I mean? I got, I took, I had the energy to, to, to respond eventually and start to really get in there with people. And, and a lot of that I think was because I had had periods of time where it was, I was just by myself and I had learned how to strengthen my mind and my spirit in those moments. So this year I went from, okay, surviving these alone moments to finding tremendous value in these alone moments by myself. And I'm talking about alone in the sense of not lonely, just by myself, no family, friends aren't in the, in the room, no roommate, just me, no pets, just me in my place and making that valuable. So yeah, long question or long answer to a short question, but I mean, that's a powerful, powerful question, you know, for 20 and that's my answer for 2020. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll flip it. I'll give you a kind of a, okay. a reverse to that. What no longer gets you excited? Mm. Ooh, even better question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I don't know if I get nearly as excited about the events that I I was so very much a part of prior to to all of this happening. I would go to a lot of these, you know, sometimes tech events or or you know, events in the city that were like sort of like pseudo tech, but it was it was you know, it was touching on all of these different like lifestyle factors. Sometimes it would be hosted by, you know, folks who were who were in the companies, folks who were recruiting. You know, last year, I, around the fall, I was at Afrotech. I mean, I love these events, but for some reason, I think I, I wasn't as excited coming into this quarantine year and with a lot of that stuff going away, because sometimes I would feel like, you know, in my experience of going to those events, they weren't necessarily as cathartic. They weren't necessarily pouring into 
the folks who were there. There was a lot of pouring out. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of like, you know, uh, it was fun. But I don't, I don't really miss that as much because, you know, the experience I've had with some of the online sessions, not to say that, you know, I, I don't crave for some of these like, you know, community like event, like moments to come back in the physical. But man, I really feel like the events that I've attended, like I attended Capital One's um, Blacks in Tech event online a little while ago. And we had Draymond, John, we had, um, we had Common stop through. There were a couple of other like tech heavyweights that came through. And it was a lot of like pouring into people. It was a lot of like pouring into, you know, people's careers, people's journeys, people's minds. It was a different level of appreciation and value. Like we hear you, we see you, we understand what you're battling, what you're battling anyway, beyond, you know, a year like 2020. And uh, I love that. And I, I hope that stays. I, I hope that there's, you know, this renewed sort of like deep compassion on, on people first. Like, how are you really doing? Right. It's not just like, hey, I'm super busy and, you know, like, hey, I, you know, let's go to this event or let's go to this event. It's like all that busyness, you know, but like now we're like really getting into the like, how are you really doing? Like, are you good? You know, like that part. I'm appreciating so much that I don't I don't miss some of the like flash and the surface level uh, connections that I sometimes would feel, you know, with the, the busyness of events. So that's a great question. I had to really think on that one. <laughs> but yeah, that one came to me pretty quickly, too, after giving it some thought. You know, that's what I that's what I don't miss as much. Now, one question that I'm asking everyone this year, and I'll ask you the same question how are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future? You know, honestly, I think that even beyond the book, talking about how you know my creative journey is going to be accessible in other formats, that's hard, part of how I'm, I'm thinking about contributing to this equitable future. Because, you know, information information is there's so much information out there good information i'm talking about not fluff i'm talking about facts there's really good information stories that are are really key for others to understand to pursue their own creative journey and i want people to know how to access that i want people to know like how do you get started on exploring like what really makes you passionate like a lot sooner and not just like we were discussing earlier, Maurice checking the box. Like if you absolutely have a deep interest in, in, in coding or some aspect of, of anything, engineering, design, I want you, and I'm talking to like the audience, I'm talking to the world. I want you to get started on that as soon as possible because time is short and time is precious. And we've seen that in 2020. So I think part of contributing to that equitable future is not just talking about the book, I think it's really talking about how I'm going to leverage the content of the book to create other platforms. Like, you know, to me, superhuman could be a platform, you know, like, am I able to, to do some YouTube videos where I talk about my creative journey and talk about aspects of, of design and being creative in, in the context of a startup? You know, does that give me an opportunity to, to like today be a part of a, a, an incredible podcast and tell my story? 
And I think all of that stuff lives on. Books live on, podcasts live on, YouTube videos live on. It's kind of interesting. It's like, in some ways, I feel sometimes a bit hesitant to put myself out there so much because I'm like, ah, I'm not an influencer. I don't feel like I'm that Instagram kind of like, look at me person. But I'm also thinking to myself, like, if I wanted to share my journey with anyone, I have to do it in real time. I can't, I can't send you anything. I can't give you access to anything. Like if you look up videos of me talking, it's from a decade ago. If you like, you know, try to learn more about me, I just got my LinkedIn page or a portfolio. I'm like, uh, I need more. I need to do some more articles. I need to do some more podcasts and I need to tell this creative journey, not for, for me so much as to give something to others. So I think the superhuman platform, going out on a limb here with this big vision, I think the superhuman platform is going to be a way, talking about the superhuman platform. And I also think that by setting up this press company, because I set up a publishing company called Gold Coast Press to publish the book, I think that press company is going to be an opportunity to contribute to an equitable future because I've learned a lot from bringing a book to life. So now I want to publish other people's stories that don't necessarily get highlighted. You know, I had a I had a woman reach out to me. She's of Indian descent and she's worked in different capacities here in the Bay Area. She's a a lead design strategist and UX researcher at Twitch and has a lot of stories. I, it was incredible. I marched with her and her husband who I work with on the Golden Gate Bridge this year. We protested back in June. And after the protest, we had a whole debrief and I was telling her about how I was working on the book. And next thing you know, we're talking about like how she might have a book. And I'm like, you know what? That's a story that maybe, you know, people aren't hearing from someone who looks like you, who is you. So I'm like, all right, let me set up a press company because this is bigger than me. I didn't put my picture on the front of the book because it's bigger than me. My picture's at the back of the book because... If you stick with the book long enough, you get to my story. And I think that when I envision this Gold Coast Press company, it's going to make an equitable future because I wanted to to tell stories that perhaps we're, we're not telling enough. So that's my goal. That's my plan. So with all of this, I mean, this might be, I mean, you might have already given the answer to this question in a way, but where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, now you've started this this publishing company, which sounds like might be a a lucrative kind of thing or or springboard for other things? In five years, I'll be 40, (laughs) hopefully. And when I imagine myself at 40, I imagine someone who is is doing something that it scares me out of my mind, but I feel like I know I'm going to end up doing it, which is I see someone who's who's getting on, on stages and going to classrooms and Right now, I see myself as doing a TED Talk, a few TED Talks. I see myself as being in the classrooms and and speaking to these students, people who are pursuing, especially people who are pursuing careers in design. I see myself getting to that 16-year-old, that 18-year-old, that 20-year-old, and I see myself speaking directly to them five years from now on my own time and my own dime. <laughs> Seriously, like independently, like I'm here because I really want to be here. And let me share 
everything that I've pulled from, you know, 15 years at the start of my career. I could see myself in five years doing that. I could see myself in five years, perhaps spending more time in academia. I think that we need more chairs who are black in design, who are leaders of some of these organizations. I'm very passionate now about the Industrial Design Society of America. I think we need more black leaders in these organizations because these organizations are well-funded. They, they have a lot of reach. So I, in five years, I see myself as not shying away from the responsibilities that I have to give, even if that means I'm a bit more public with my life and it's, it's not as private as it's been previously. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you, about your work, everything? Where can they find that online? Yeah. So I would say if you're on Instagram, really simple, Mr. Burlock. That's my last name. So MR Burlock on Instagram. And from there, you can click and join the Superhuman by Design feed. I'm very active on LinkedIn, Donald Burlock, really easy to find. And I also have a pretty active, not only LinkedIn, but also Facebook. So you can add me on Facebook, just my personal account. And then from there, we're hoping to have superhumanbydesign.com launched next week, I think is the goal before Thanksgiving. So Superhuman by Design. And, and from there, you'll be able to, to get in touch with me and connect on all my other channels. Sounds good. Well, Donald Burlock, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think certainly the main thing that people will hopefully get from this is that you've had quite the journey to get to where you are right now. And I'm I'm so thankful that you've been able to take and really take all of that into perspective and learn from it and not only distill it down into this book, but also look at ways that you can give back to the community so people can mm. know, you know, this is how you can tap into your own kind of well of inspiration, yes. which is something, you know, going into next year, I think is going to be very, very important as we continue through this kind of turbulent time. But thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Maurice, thank you so much for hosting me on this platform. I am honored. I'm humbled. Absolutely love what you're doing. And I'm so happy we're closing out 2020, meeting each other and having this conversation. So feeling extremely fortunate to be here with you today. Thank you. Big, big thanks to Donald Burlock. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Donald and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays, and we will see you next time.